If you would, open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah is part, if you go to Psalms and turn back to the left, that's probably the easiest way to, uh, to find Nehemiah in your, in your Bible. In fact, we're going to read the end of chapter 2, and then we're going to work our way into, into chapter 3 this morning. A couple of notes as, as we get started this morning. At the end of the sermon, as our response to the gospel and our response to God's word this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And then after the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing the doxology together and we'll be dismissed at that time. But, but let me say this as clearly as I can and hear me out on this. If you're here this morning and you need someone to pray with you in person, you have questions about faith, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you know today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you trust in Jesus for salvation. As soon as we finish that last song, we're going to be right here at the front. And you may have heard something in that hymn, Jesus paid it all, that Jesus died for your sins. As you watch the Lord's Supper being taken and, and we celebrate Jesus giving his body and blood for us, in that moment you may realize, I've never trusted in Jesus for salvation. I've been trusting in myself or something else. We want you, as soon as that final song is finished, we're going to be right here at the front. And our greatest joy today would be to pray with you that you trust in Jesus for salvation. So know that that's where we're going to go. We're going to study the Word of God. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And then there's going to be an opportunity after that last song. You just come forward and we'll be here to pray with you. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's read God's Word together this morning as we're, as we're getting started. Starting in verse 17, here's what it says. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, you see the trouble we are in, right? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray together as a church this morning. Father, we come... Uh, remembering the words of that last hymn we sang, that Jesus paid it all. God, there are times that we think that we have to get our act together to come back to you. We think that we can solve these problems in our life on our own, and yet we turn to you and we find hope and salvation, and we're so thankful for that, God. Teach us this morning what it means to be a church, what you've called us to, what it looks like to do that together. God, thank you for a church family that is committed to ministry and missions right here next door to us, right here in our parking lot next week, and around the world through ministry and trips and Operation Christmas Child and giving to the cooperative program and so many other ways, God. Thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives and in our church. And right now, God, help us to focus our minds and our hearts on your word 
And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever worked on a project that was taking forever? Like you're just working at it and working at it and working at it, and then somebody comes in and they look at your project and they say, we'll just do it this way. And then it's finished in five minutes, 10 minutes. You spent years of your life, hours of your life on this, and they come in and they fix it so quickly. That pretty much describes every construction project that ever happened at my house. Like, I work on it, work on it, work on it, and then my wife very kindly comes in and says, why don't you do it like this? And you're like, oh, you're right. <laughs> it's so much easier. Pretty much, she should run all the construction projects at our church, or at our, at our church and our, in my house, is what I mean by that. So uh, what does that have to do with Nehemiah? What does that have to do with Nehemiah? Remember what's going on in the background with the book of Nehemiah, the timeline and how these things have been laid out. So you go back to a time around 605 BC where Babylon, this great empire to the east of Israel, is coming in and taking over Jerusalem and destroying the temple and the city and taking the people into exile. Burn that word exile into your mind when you think about biblical theology. We, we know the word exodus, but we don't know exile as well. Exile is where the people are taken away to live in other countries, and, and they're taken there to live in Babylon. But then the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and the Persians begin to send some of the people back to Jerusalem. And so they start to come back around 539 B.C. They're beginning to come back into Jerusalem. They're beginning to start to rebuild the temple but they never rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah shows up around 445 BC, and one of his main callings is going to be re to rebuild the walls. And what you're gonna find is for well over 50 years, the people have been trying to work on this construction project, and we find out in Nehemiah chapter six, it takes them 52 days to actually build the wall. <laughs> So here's a construction project. Imagine the project at your house that has gone untouched for 52 years, and then somebody comes in, and in 50 days, it's taken care of, everything's dealt with. What's going on here? Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Look at this. First, we see here the urgency of the mission that they have. Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. First point today is the urgency of the mission. What you find earlier in chapter 2 is that when Nehemiah came into the city, he took a night tour of the city to see what was going on, and he saw that things were not good. <laughs> um, sometimes in our lives, we need an outside perspective. Because when you've lived in the house with a hole in the wall, after a little while, you don't see the hole in the wall anymore. And then somebody comes over to your house and says, hey, do you know you have a hole in the wall? You're like, oh, I meant to get that fixed, like years ago. And then somebody comes in. We don't always see our mess. We don't always smell everything that's around us. Like, we need an outside perspective to come in and say, hey, have you ever noticed that needs, this needs to be dealt with? Nehemiah comes in and he sees the problem. And guess what? Some people see problems and they start complaining. Other people see problems and they start working. Nehemiah sees something that needs to be dealt with. Things are not good here. 
And he says, hey, let's, let's get to work. He assesses the situation. But it's not just, and this is key for the book of Nehemiah, so, so make sure we, we understand this piece. It's not just that the walls are broken down. The last part of that verse says that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, we don't use the word derision hardly ever. So what does that word mean? Because the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, other nations were looking at them and they were mocking them. They were ridiculing them. They were booing them. Like there's all this negative perception that is coming against Jerusalem because the walls are knocked down. Key point here. When we think about the book of Nehemiah, we tend to think about the book as a leadership book. Like, hey, read Nehemiah and you become a better leader. Nothing wrong with that in particular, but hear me out on this. The book of Nehemiah is about the glory of God being on display to the world. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. And the reason the walls being knocked down are such a big deal is because the walls are knocked down and the temple is exposed. It's a way of the people saying the temple is not that big a deal. The worship of God is not that big of a deal. We really don't care about God's glory being elevated. And this is a problem because the other nations are looking at them and saying, what kind of God is that? That the people don't even care about the temple. Which leads us to ask the question, when people who are not followers of Jesus look at the church, what is their perception of the church? When people look at us from the outside, do they think, man, they really don't value the worship of their God? Or they don't live with integrity. They say one thing when they go to their worship service, but they live and act and speak in a completely different way. They don't really love and care for one another. What is the perception of the church in the world in which we live today? say it's not particularly good. Now, in some sense, in some sense, it is true that, that those who follow Jesus will never be loved or supported by those who don't. And I understand that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that people would look at our worship and say, they don't really care about that. There's no integrity. There's a lot of hypocrisy. They don't even love one another. Mainly they bite and devour and argue with one another. Our actions as the people of God communicate to the world what we believe about the glory of God. Our actions as the church, how we operate, communicates to the world what we believe about the glory of God. That as the people of God, we've been called to worship, we've been called to holiness, we've been called to love and serve one another, we've been called to this mission that God has given us as his people for the purpose of us glorifying God. There's a beautiful verse, a couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 3 that I want to tie in here to Nehemiah that I think is particularly important. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Don't you love that phrase? <laughs> like we believe, we believe that God will be glorified through his son Jesus. Jesus, he, he did really well with that. Like he's taking care of that. But can you imagine the fact that we exist as a church in order to bring glory to God? That is why we exist. The question is, are we doing that? 
Are we carrying out the mission that God has given us? Are we worshiping with passion and integrity? Are we living lives that show that we love and care for one another? Are we committed to these things? Because you go back to verse 17, what do you find right in the middle of verse 17? When Nehemiah sees the trouble that they're in and how they're not upholding God's glory and they're being mocked by the nations, what does he say in the middle? He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. This idea, Nehemiah here, if you can use this illustration Amanda and I were, were, were talking about yesterday, remember the Titans movie? Uh, Nehemiah is, is going to remember the Titans here. He is saying, unless we come together, Right now, on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed the way that they were destroyed. Unless we come together right now, in this hallowed place, we too will be destroyed, just as others were. That we come together to build the walls around Jerusalem, at that time, we come together now to say we will do everything to display the glory of God to the world and let me add on just a little tag here so there's, there's no confusion. I said this a few weeks ago. I just want to make sure there's no confusion. When you see us going through the book of Nehemiah right now, and it says, come, let us build together, we're not trying to use the book of Nehemiah to project ourselves into our master plan and doing all the building that we have coming. That's good. And, and those things are great. But any work that we're going to do around our property in 2022 and looking down the road at a new preschool and children's building and all this building we're going to do, that is a representation of a greater desire to make disciples of all nations. That at the end of the day, we are called to worship, we are called to live lives of holiness, we are called to love and serve one another, and we're called to make the gospel known to the world around us. And doing building projects on campus is going to be a fun part of that but it's just a representation. It's just a picture of a deeper work that God wants to do in our lives of revival and calling us to live for his glory. So how did the people respond? Look in verse 18. So there's urgency. We, we have to give our lives to this. Don't give our lives to anything else. Verse 18, Nehemiah says, I told the people about the hand of my God that had been upon me. God's in this. He's working for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And what do the people say in the middle of verse 18? There's a commitment here. They said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. At this time, you see, that was a good fall right there. Uh, at, at this time, you see the commitment of the people, how they are completely bought in. There's a word play there's a word play that I would point out to you here. The word strengthen, if you guys can go back to that last slide just before. The word strengthen, when it says in this situation that the people strengthen their hands, it doesn't come across particularly clear in English. But this word for strengthen their hands is the same word in chapter 3 when it's going to talk about repairing the wall. So here's what's happening. They are strengthening their hands before they go and strengthen the wall. And the purpose behind this is that in order for them to do the work that this is going to require, they need to be fully bought in. They need to be fully committed to what's going to happen. Because otherwise, they're going to back away from this task. Because this is not easy, what they're going to be called to do. 
We're going to see more next week of the sacrifice that this is going to take to build the wall. And they have to be totally committed to this endeavor. So Scripture tells us they strengthen their hands before they go and strengthen the wall. They are committed to what's going to happen. Now, when you are committed to the Word of God, to the mission of God, what can you anticipate every time? You can anticipate opposition. (laughs) Verse 19, look at what happens in verse 19. Every time you're making a commitment, I'm going to move ahead with this. There's always something that happens. Verse 19, but when Samballot, the Horonite, And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, we've already seen Sanballat before. He's one of the governors just north of this area, just north of Jerusalem. So he's the governor in Samaria. We've already learned about Tobiah. He's Sanballat's rich friend who has an area of land off to the northeast. Geshem is really interesting. You see Geshem's name here, and it looks like just like a, almost a throwaway name in, in the biblical text. Archaeologists have actually found quite a bit of information about Geshem over the years through different digs and, and different materials that have been found. Geshem was a leader of these Arabian tribes that were to the southeast of Jerusalem, And so what you find in this verse is the people of God are surrounded on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. (laughs) They're surrounded on the north by Sanballat. They're surrounded on the east by Tobiah. And on the south is Geshem. This verse is saying they are facing opposition from every direction. Every time in your life you commit, I'm going to get involved in church. (laughs) I'm going to serve I'm going to grow my faith. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to live for God's glory. What can you expect almost every time? Opposition. Opposition from people around you. Opposition from circumstances. But what's the response in verse 20? Verse 20. Then Nehemiah replied, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Friends, when you are committed to the mission of God, any opposition you face is nothing compared to God's power at work in your life. When God is in it, when God is at work in your life, when God is leading the mission, it will prosper, not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is, his power, his glory. And so Nehemiah tells them, hey guys, don't, Don't worry about those opposition. Those people that are booing you and ridiculing you and mocking you, don't worry about them. God is leading you. And what does he say in the middle there, verse 20? It says, we, his servants, will arise and build. He needs the people here to know their true identity because this is so neat the way the the biblical text works here. For the last hundred years, they have been servants of other nations. So their whole identity as a people for a long time has been as slaves and servants of other nations. And Nehemiah tells them, hey, remember, you're not servants of those nations. You are servants of the God Most High. And when you realize who you're serving, you're going to give everything to this mission that's in front of you. When we understand our identity as followers of Jesus, 
when we understand our identity as servants of God, no opposition is going to stand against us because we're going to give ourselves to this mission that God has put in front of us. Now the question is, what's the plan for the mission? How are they going to do it? Chapter 3, verse 1. This plan is so great. That's what we're going to give ourselves to at the, at the end here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Chapter 3, of which we're not going to read every verse, <laughs> but chapter 3 is going to lay out the people who build the wall. This is so important as we think about church life. I gotta point all 10 fingers of myself on this, and we're not pointing fingers at anybody else, but, but me and my experience in ministry. If we're not careful from a church perspective, we would get to chapter three, verse one, and read about how Nehemiah built the whole wall. Like, Nehemiah, he came up with the idea, he rallied the people, and they cheered for him and gave money while he went out and built the wall. But you know what Nehemiah does in chapter three? He rallies the troops together and they build the wall together. That the plan for rebuilding the wall to the glory of God is not that one person does all the work and gets the glory, it's that everybody is involved in this project. And it begins here with the high priest. The last people you would think would be getting their hands dirty building the wall are the first people that are mentioned in Nehemiah chapter three, that they are going to give themselves to this. And this is going to be a holy work that is set before them, H-O-L-Y, a holy work. Friends, when you go to work, when you serve in the two-year-old class, when you help out on Wednesday nights, when you do whatever God has put in front of you, maybe you minister next door at the children's home, whatever work God has given you to do, it is a holy work. When you go to work during the week and you honor God in your workplace, and you work with integrity, and you pray for your coworkers, and you live out the gospel, your work is a holy work because you're doing it to serve the Lord, not people. Verse two, what do you find in verse two? Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri, built. We just keep building, more people are involved in this. Verse three. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. You get the idea? Like, they're all working together. And, and you know what these people are not? They are not expert wall builders. <laughs> like, this is not like they were trained to build walls. They all have other jobs. They all have other callings. But everybody has been brought in because they need to complete this mission. And Nehemiah has brought, brought the people together. Verse 5, next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Now, this is really interesting. Here's your first group that said, yeah, not for us. <laughs> you guys go build that, that wall. We're not going to get involved in that. Why? Well, we, we don't know for sure, but there's a very good guess about why these people don't get involved. Remember our opponent, Geshem. 
who is located to the southeast of Jerusalem. Guess who else is kind of located in that area? The Tekoites. It's not hard to figure out how they're thinking about this. Hey, if we go up to Jerusalem and we start working on this wall and our neighbor Geshem hears that we've gone to work on this wall, he's not going to be too happy. And we're stranded out here in the desert and he's going to turn on us and we're going to be in trouble. It's hard for people to buy into a mission that's not directly connected to their lives. That's going to require sacrifice of which they may not get back a lot of direct benefits from. Guess what happens in church life? Guess what happens in in life today? It's easy to get people to buy into something that directly benefits them. It's hard to get people to sacrifice and buy into something of which they may not see direct benefits. And in fact, it may cost them more, but by getting involved, they may not see those benefits up close. You see the Tekoites, how these nobles are like, we're not getting involved in that. That's not going to benefit us. It's just going to cause us more trouble. But not all of them do that because it says that some of them did do the repair work. Just because their leaders didn't have any courage didn't mean the people didn't get involved here. Jump down a little bit. We're not going to read every verse because you don't need to hear me pronounce every word in chapter 3. So uh, let's skip down to verse 12. I love verse 12. I just picked out a couple here for us to look at. Verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Holowish, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired, he and his daughters. Unfortunately, the ladies don't get a lot of coverage in in Nehemiah chapter 3. But you know what you know? This part of the wall was the best looking part of the wall in the entire wall. Because this guy brought his, uh, his, his daughters in and it had a lot of reclaimed wood in this area and a very open floor plan and the lighting was great and like this was the HGTV portion of the wall because this guy got his daughters involved in what was happening. So, so we don't know a lot about the wall but we know this was the best looking part of the wall. If you jump down to verse 29, just go all the way um, all the way, oh, not 29, go to all the way down to 32. Sorry, all the way down to 32, end of the chapter. Between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, why mention that? Well, what was the first gate that was worked on all the way back in verse 1? It was the sheep gate. Verse 32 is telling you that the work was complete. It's come full circle, clockwise, all the way around the city, and and the work is complete. Now, with something like Nehemiah 2 and 3, the question is, how do you connect that to the church? How do you connect that to the gospel? I would submit to you, Emmaus, Nehemiah chapter 3 is a powerful picture of how the church is designed to work. The people of God, unified around the mission of God, working together for the glory of God. The people of God who are unified around the mission of God, everyone working together for the glory of God. And there's some really beautiful verses in the New Testament that talk about this. Philippians chapter one, might point your attention to that. Philippians chapter one, verses 27 and 28. Standing firm in one spirit, Paul says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. That verse feels like Nehemiah chapters two and three, that we are striving side by side, not frightened by opponents. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 12, 
He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know, in our worst moments as a church, not us individually as a church, but just churches in general, you begin to look at people in leadership in the church and they're the ministers, they do the work of ministry, and instead, what do you find in scripture? People in a position of spiritual leadership are supposed to equip the body to do the work of ministry. We're not always perfect at this because we fall back into old ways of speaking that we just learned growing up, but in scripture, the term minister, minister of, minister as a, as a leadership role, isn't used for people in areas of spiritual leadership, it's used for the people of God. When you think about who are the ministers at Emmaus, you are. We, we are together as the body. And anybody in a position of spiritual leadership, our goal is to equip and encourage and deploy the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. Uh, uh, verse 16 of Ephesians chapter four, it's up on the screen here. Ephesians four sixteen, from Christ, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we grow as a church? Not when anybody in a position of leadership comes up with a great idea. How do we grow as a church? When every person is doing the work that God has called them to do, and we're doing it together in love. That's how the church grows. That's what God has called us to do. Which suggests a question. How are you serving? How are you serving as part of the church of God? Which means we need to be connected to a church so that we can do this work of ministry, so we can do this work of service, but, but make, it very, make it very personal for yourself. How are you serving? A couple of ideas about this. Number one, just start right where you are. Don't complicate this. God has called us to serve. Start right where you are. What gifts has God given you? What talents has God given you? Where has God placed you? When we think about serving in the church, don't think first of some type of title or, or program. Just think about your Sunday school class or your small group or the people who sit around you in the worship center or where God has placed you in your neighborhood. Start right where you are. And people who serve are people who just see the needs. <laughs> when you show up to Emmaus, when you show up to whatever your church is on, on Sunday mornings, look around. You didn't come primarily for yourself. You came in order to glorify God and to serve those around you. Just see the needs. Listen. Pay attention. Look around. There's opportunities that God will put right in front of you to serve people and the way he's equipped you to do that. Uh, if you need suggestions, we would love to provide those suggestions to you. Uh, those suggestions often come in the form of a background check so you can work in the preschool, or they often become in the form of, hey, could you help us over here in kids' ministry? What more do we want to give ourselves to, though, than to be able to serve those of coming generations so they would know about the glory of God, that we would give ourselves to that, and that when we serve, if we're not careful, people who are drawn to serving end up doing all the work, and they get burnt out. And then they start doing the work just because they signed up for the job and not because it's coming from their heart. When you serve, you're not just serving to fill a role, you're saying, how can I bring other people along with me? There's a great term for this, 
sometimes what you need to do is just tell someone, you were voluntold to do this. Um, so you can voluntell people uh, to do things. Like, hey, I've seen God at work in your life. I'm going to tap you on the shoulder and say, have you ever thought about doing this? It's a weird form of matchmaking <laughs> where you, you see someone, you see a need, and God, God's Holy Spirit prompts you to say, I wonder if that person has ever thought about serving in this way. And you know what most people need in order to start serving? They just need a personal invite. They just need someone to come along and say, have you thought about doing this? Can I invite you to do this with me? And then as a servant in the church, you're just constantly replacing yourself. You're just constantly saying, who can I bring along to do this and then be able to send them out? And the real joy of this is we serve for the glory of God. We wanna do this for him. We serve for the good of others because we love to do good for those around us. And when we serve, you know what it brings? It brings incredible joy to our lives. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this last week, and they were talking about a scientific study that was done recently that showed that when someone served another person or gave resources to help another person, it actually activates those parts of our brain that produces the dopamine and gives you that really good feeling in life. And it's reason, I mean, it's example number 5,050 of where science is just showing you what God's word has always said all along. Like, where does joy come from? Joy comes when we serve others, doing what God has called us to do. When we serve, we get connected with people. When we serve, we have purpose. Uh, there's been a lot of studies done over the last couple of years going through COVID, uh, and, and we know it, and we, we, we feel this. Overall, church attendance has taken a brutal hit uh, through, through COVID for, for so many different reasons. This is not about guilt. I'm, I'm getting to another place with this, but church attendance has taken such a hit. Um, and there's questions about what's that gonna look like in, in the years to come. And, and what we're seeing is in the years to come, the key metric for churches will not be church attendance, but how many people are actively engaged in the mission of the church. So we're not gonna be counting how many people attend. We're gonna be focused on how many people are serving. Because when you're serving, when you're engaged, you wanna be there. You're excited to be a part of it. It's not just something I'm attending to watch or to show up to. I'm giving my life to this. Why? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're a little bit turned off by church anyway, but, but you've, you've been around for family or friends or what, for whatever the reason. I know this morning feels like kind of insider talk about who we're supposed to be as a church. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to remember that we are giving our lives to and we are worshiping a Savior who is not about drawing power to himself, but who came to give his life for you. He came to die so that your sins would be covered and taken away. He died for you in your place so you would have life and have it eternally. And so I know sometimes our perception of church is they're just trying to raise money and they just wanna be in power and they just wanna tell people what to do. Friends, we follow a savior who gave his life for us. He served and he saved so that those who follow him would turn around and serve others. And so as the people of God, as the church of God, in the years ahead, what are we gonna give ourselves to? 
We're going to live as his people, unified around his mission for his glory, with the hope that he would draw many people to salvation through Jesus. And we're going to end our service today by celebrating that, by taking of the Lord's Supper, by remembering having a picture of what it was for Jesus to serve us by giving his life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, friends, this is a perfect time to consider what does this mean for your life. After I pray, we're gonna invite you to come to one of these tables that's gonna be served by by some of our our leaders in the church. You're gonna come to a table. There's a couple of cups that are stacked together. You can pull those out, take them back to your seat, wait. We'll take the elements together, but right now, I just wanna pray for us, and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these stories in the Old Testament from the book of Nehemiah that we might read and think, you know, what does that have to do with us? How does that connect to our lives today? God, thank you for the picture of the church that we see in Nehemiah chapter three. God, make us urgent for this mission. We know that people today, whether it's teenagers at school, whether it's people in our workplace, people in our neighborhood, they think about church, they think about the things of Christianity, and usually it's not a very positive thing that comes to their minds, God. There's a lot of mockery of the things of faith. People look at us and they see those who are apathetic about worship or hypocritical. God, we we know that those things exist, but God, we know that your glory will be displayed to the world through your church. And so, God, in a world where people are so negative toward the church, we want to recommit ourselves to what you called us to. God, we know the church only exists because of the body and blood of Jesus. And so as we remember that, that he served us, that we would turn around and serve others. And God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who maybe they've gotten disconnected from church a little bit or they they attend regularly but they don't feel like they're really part of what's going on, God, draw their hearts to serve. Draw their hearts to where they can get involved. And God, help us as a Mayus to do that well together. That It's not about one or two people serving. It's about what we're doing together as the body of Christ. And thank you that we can have this time of worship together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.